Welcome to the Clifford Chance Podcast, where our experts discuss pressing issues and trends faced by the business world today. I'm Malcolm Sweeting, and I'm joined today by your own overhand, our newly elected senior partner, and Connie Heng from our Hong Kong office, and who leads our Asia-Pacific capital markets practice. We were part of the Clifford Chance delegation at the World Economic Forum in Davos last month. So at Davos this year, trade was at the top of the agenda. And in particular, there was tremendous concern around the trade tensions which exist between the US and China, in fact, described as the US-China trade war. We held a dinner, which you moderated, Jerome, with um, Professor Nouriel Roubini, which really talked about some of these issues, and in particular, um, the trade wars and how they're developing and their impact on the global economy. Can you just talk a little bit more about the detail of what Rabini, Rabini was saying and the discussion that you moderated? Um, certainly, Malcolm. I mean, he said, he said a lot. <laughs> it was a, a very interesting dinner, I thought, uh, with clearly a, a great mind. Um, he sometimes called Dr. Doom because of his, uh, you know, his ability. He's predicted many, many um, recessions. Uh, a question I asked him and asked the audience, in fact, is whether uh, he and the audience were expecting a recession in the next 12 to 24 months. Uh, and I frankly sort of expected him to say that that might well be the case. Um, where he took us was far more a slightly longer term view, because he said when we talk about the trade war now, we're all thinking about you know, the meeting which is happening in Washington actually as we speak. Um, and he said that probably, you know, they'll that may or may not be resolved to a certain extent. Um, Trump is going to want to be re-elected. He doesn't want to have a recession in the next two years. Uh, the far bigger issue is the longer term, uh, you know, he called it a, a cold war between the US and China around technology. Uh, and that was really the issue he was focusing on far more than whether or not tariffs would be imposed in the next month. Mm. And Connie, from an Asian perspective, um, is there concern in Asia around this fracturing of the relationship between the US and China? Will that fracture be mended or are people in, China, in Asia, in China, now looking really to reconfigure their businesses, their supply chains in what may be a different world for the next 10 years? Definitely. I, I think more so uh, than ever before, Asian, Asian businesses, Chinese businesses um, have had to have never had to think too carefully or too hard about how they do their business, um, where they set up their base. Um, but with this tension, with these tensions, uh, a trade war is just one aspect of it. With the technology war that's going on, um, Asian businesses will need to rethink um, how, how, how they set up um, their internal systems, for example, the risk of cyber security. Um, and we as a law firm um, are incredibly excited um, on the one hand, um, to be able to help um, companies navigate that, this, these difficult territories. Mm. And I think very importantly, you spoke about technology and technology and data, and data was a big, big issue. Um, and Jerome, coming from Europe, we're really, I suppose, in between the US um, and China. How do you think Europe is going to be impacted, and how can Europe react to what they're seeing in the world today? I think for Europe there are a number of special challenges. First of all, um, to keep up with the uh, fast changes in technology. There's some great examples in pockets in Europe where you've got a lot of technolo technological innovation and, and 
Uh, but the way Rubini put it, put it uh, maybe in a slightly negative way, was that what uh, Europe was doing in the area of technology was, what did he say, spare change. In other words, you know, the real battleground, or where things, battleground is maybe, maybe or maybe not the wrong word, but where things are really happening is far more in China and the US. So I think there's a risk for Europe to be left behind. Mm. Uh, that was one of the themes uh, he was talking about. Um, the other theme is, if we really go to a cold war between the US and China around technology, there's going to, a, a situation is going to arise that the sort of, you are either with us or against us type of situation, and we've already seen it in, in, in some areas. Uh, and and, and uh, that will be, and that's not just for Europe, but certainly also for Europe, sort of caught in, in the middle, if you will, and I think that is a, 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 a big challenge. So let's just um, you know, continue with the um, Chinese approach to data and how they use data, which is very different to the US and very different to Europe. And China clearly has an ambition, and I think that's one of America's concerns, that they wish to be the world's leading AI economy within the next few years. The use of data, the ownership of data, the use of data uh, within a huge economy like China, how is that going to impact what's happening in the current world? Well, Rubini talked about balkanization. Actually, quite a few experts talked about balkanization. I think there will be balkanization on the use of data. Um, China's um, use and regulated the use of data um, ownership um, in, uh, for a period of time in a certain way, a certain system, very different from how the rest of the world um, does it. And I think, um, are they going to change? Are they going to morph closer to how the rest of the world? I think that's just, um, I think that's something to per space to watch. Now, if they don't, um, then we're going to end up with, you know, China's way of doing things and the rest of the world. And for our clients with, um, you know, multinationals, with businesses um, across um, the globe, that will be a challenge. Mm. And, um, and we will need to help, help them navigate these difficult territories. Mm. And we touched on that in our dinner last year at Davos, which was, um, around the splinternet, which was described by Gillian Tett as these different systems really um, coming into existence around the use of data and the use of uh, the use of the internet, and in particular, sort of the digital economy and therefore services. Um, and services are growing much more rapidly than trading goods at the moment. Do we do we think that actually there can be a coordinated global response to some of these issues, and particularly taxation of um, the digital e-commerce? industry. Um, I think that's a sort of fascinating and difficult area. Were there any things which Rubini or other conversations in Davos that touched on this, own? It certainly was touched on and I know, you know there are uh, um, initiatives and things happening in that area, for example, uh, um, uh, regulating taxation around e-commerce and trying to approach that in a multilateral global way, sort of revamping the, the WTO and making it much fit for where we are today. There are uh, counter forces against the balkanization. Uh, you saw Japan, which is taking the leadership of the G20, uh, really wanting to take a proactive uh, leading role on that. So uh, obviously, you know, there are uh, there was a lot of uh, discussion about how we can avoid that balkanization. So so these themes were very much discussed and not just discussed. Uh, that that gave some more positive feeling that that um, uh, we are not just drifting away from the multilateral mm. wor world. Hopefully. And then finally, Connie, Lagarde talked about, uh, Christine Lagarde of the IMF 
talked about the high levels of debt within the economy, particularly relative to the global financial crisis of 2008, both um, with sovereigns, corporates and consumers. And in particular, there is some concern around levels of debt in China and potentially a, a China slowdown. What is your take on that? Well, I think the level, of, the debt levels in China has been long been a concern. Um, and with, I think the bigger question is not just the debt levels, but in light of the geopolitical tensions, how will um, China emerge from this current situation of high debt levels, lower domestic consumption, as well as geopolitical tensions? At Davos this year, climate change, quite rightly, was top of the agenda and has been actually for the last couple of years. And one of the UK's national treasures, Sir David Attenborough, at 92, was, I think, one of the stars of Davos this year. And he talked about moving from the Holocene era, which is the last 12,000 years, to the Anthropocene era, which is the era of the human. And he was quite negative, but actually, I think, ended on a positive note. Can I just get your own first... your takeaways on climate change and its profile and some of the discussion around it at Davos? Um, I can't compare it to other years. It wasn't, it's been on the agenda for many years, and rightly so. Uh, this was my first Davos, but it was very a very central theme. Um, and apart from the sort of star quality of Sir David Attenborough, who I went to one of his panels and I actually found myself just closing my eyes because you just know his voice from the fantastic uh, documentaries he, he, he makes and his new one coming out, Our Planet. Uh, which he talked about. Uh, but, you know, uh, he was basically saying, and it's not new, but just hearing him say it so forcefully, you know, we are at the brink of being too late. There's going to be a point that it's going to be irreversible. Um, and our Garden of Eden is no more. And that is a sentence that really stuck. And it's not just about climate change. It is about uh, the state of our oceans and it's about the loss of species and there's a report that we've lost over 60% of our species in the last what is it 40 50 years and that uh, speed of extinction is is increasing dramatically it's Moore's law which we know from technology is also uh, applying to to our planet um, so the theme was very central uh, that is not new but I think what is what I understand is new is the sort of sense of urgency now with big business and governments, and it was yeah. moving away from um, the talk to really the walk. The fact that there were, um, even the fact that there was a 16-year-old Greta Thunberg from Sweden who t traveled 32 hours in the train to be there and to be on the platform and say, I don't want the grown-ups to tell me the fact that you're here is giving me hope. I want you to panic because the house is on fire. And, and that statement, you know, really next to the Garden of Eden statement stuck. And, and I think it will move people more and more into action. Yeah. And we have to. Really powerful statements. And encouragingly, but only sort of slightly encouragingly, I was told that there were 19% less private jets at St. Garland and Zurich airports this year for Davos, which is, I think, a responsible sign by the business community. Are there different um, um, attitudes and approaches to climate change between the US, Europe and Asia. And Connie, what's your sense in Asia of the threat of climate change? Well, I think in Asia, companies are probably, I'd say they're sort of on average, a few steps behind Asia-based companies. But that said, it's picking up pace. Um, I think leaders, com leaders and companies no longer can ignore the cry for um, sustainable business practices. 
certainly when uh, we had a bilateral meeting with a very senior client, um, th there was a lot of talk about how his institution invests in imp impact, they call it impact investing and sustainable investing. Um, and I think right now, more so than any other time, the urgency and the need, um, the, the, the cry for investing in sustainable industries is louder and louder. And how can regulation play a part in addressing climate change? And one of the very interesting uh, discussions that I had in Davos was actually regulation can sort of dictate behaviour. So, for example, in Europe, diesel cars are dominant, and that's because regulation pushes you towards diesel cars. In China, Connie, um, actually electric cars are it's the fastest growing segment of the market. And again, that's because regulation in China is pushing it that way. What can, what can governments do and what can businesses do together in order to ensure that the right decisions are made? Um, I'd like to answer your question in a slightly different way, if I may, because you earlier asked the question, you know, what is the difference in the US or in China? And you know, one thing is at the country level or political level. We all know in the US, you know, President Trump has withdrawn from the Paris Climate Accords, uh, and that is then really worrying. But the positive thing is that you see that businesses are frankly not listening to that. Um, and a lot of the change is coming from businesses. And the reason it's coming from businesses is other than you know, understanding that we need to you know, do right by the planet and by ourselves, there is a far more purely economical reason that business-wise um, it is, um, you know, if renewable energy becomes cheaper and the margins are better than coal or, or other natural resources, we will pivot that way for pure business reasons. And I think where governments can help, going back to your questions, is to enable, with re regulations, and enable the businesses that will help our planet uh, um, uh, foster, just creating an environment where those businesses uh, can operate. Uh, to, to the best, in the best way possible, because then the economic imperatives will lead us to pivot uh, towards that area, uh, more than whether or not we're, we're party to an accord. So that's the voice of the consumer, the voice of the people, which is driving business to make the, the right decisions, business doing the right thing, which is great. Um, my own sense is actually that in Beijing, where the air quality used to be, you know, quite frankly, appalling, the air quality is improving. And I think that's um, an improving quite sort of materially recently. And I think that's as a result of um, the government having to take notice of the voice of the people in Beijing who have got to the point where actually pollution is no longer acceptable. Um, Maybe, Malcolm, just to interrupt you, I think in, certainly in China, the government is, is increasing the awareness of it. Um, in my own practice area, um, green bonds and green financing mm. is because sustainable financing is becoming a very hot big topic uh, certainly part of the Chinese leadership's grand plans for the next few years to promote sustainable financing um, which no one would have thought before no. that's top of their agenda China is the biggest issuer of green bonds in the world is it that is. correct yes and that's encouraging that's encouraging yes well I think this is an area again which is going to stay on the agenda quite rightly so and I think that the the, the contribution that we can make as a, as a business in terms of regulation and in terms of helping to develop the green bond um, asset class, I think is really, really important. The World Economic Forum doesn't always get its topics, its themes right, but I think a few years ago with the introduction of the fourth industrial revolution, they got it absolutely right. And if I'm honest, the first time that I heard of blockchain was back in 2015 at the World Economic Forum. But these days, blockchain seems to be a regular part of our language. So can we just explore technology, data, 
blockchain, AI, and its impact on the global economy and on the world and actually on us. What were the discussion points at Davos this year, your own, around technology? Um, there were, were quite a few discussion points around technology. It was a big theme. Um, one which really stuck with me uh, is the speed of technological change. Well, that is not new, but really about how you avoid people being left behind. Again, not a new theme, but one which was very uh, uh, high on the agenda and which you could, could sense. And it's how do you bring your people along in the technological uh, uh, change that is happening? Change is really fast today, but it will be even faster tomorrow and even faster the day after. Now, that can be scary, um, but it is a matter of um, reskilling um, people embracing that change. And, and I think that was very much a theme. So that really stuck with me. Mm. Well, that, I, mean, that, I think that's interesting because it sort of touches on one of the other themes in Davos, which was populism and whether actually populism is part of a backlash um, against technology as much as against other things. And was there any discussion around the big technology companies and the reaction of consumers to those companies? Absolutely. I think there is a, something which I, I hadn't heard before but called you know, tech lash. I think that has to do uh, with the fear that the technological change brings. It has to do with some of the issues we've seen around misuse or abuse of, of data uh, with some of the big tech companies. I think there was a clear uh, and, and very credible and good uh, uh, effort by some of the technology companies to explain how they'd learned from that. So I think things hopefully will change there as well. Uh, but, but there was definitely uh, a so-called tech lash not just against the big technology companies, but just against the change in general. And um, when it comes, you, you mentioned blockchain and AI and data before. Uh, blockchain was maybe this time less of a theme as such. It was really around AI. And I remember this, the sentence someone said, you know, uh, you need AI or you die, uh, but you can also die by AI. Uh, and what that tries to say is, you know, you can't stay behind. We need artificial intelligence in our processes as Clifford Chance, other businesses, but you can also get it wrong. Uh, and if your input is wrong, if your input is not diverse enough, you know, to put it bluntly, garbage in, garbage out, you can get uh, into huge difficulty. And then the human factor, an interesting element was, you know, AI can be uh, very intelligent, but does it have a human, uh, uh, the, the human factor, and does it have the common sense factor? And a very simple example which stuck with me, someone said, well, you know, every uh, uh, you know, every waiter in a restaurant knows that you don't like people to leave before they've paid. You want them to pay before they leave. And you can teach AI this. But what uh, a waiter will also know, if the house is on fire or the restaurant is on fire, he shouldn't care about being paid. They should just get out. Well, will AI uh, be able to understand that? And it was a very maybe simple example, but, but you know, really hitting on the point, if you implement artificial intelligence in the wrong way, you know, what are we going to get? So there was a lot of discussion around mm. that. Interesting. J just to add to um, your own uh, points, um, in the past uh, Davos, there was um, discussion around, it's not new, um, how do we regulate um, the use of technology, mm. uh, social media? Um, can the regulators and governments keep up with the technological change? But what's new this Davos, there's a big expectation, and I guess a sense that not only do the big tech companies need to abide by the law, they need to do the right thing and act responsibly. Um, and that's the reaction to tech lash. 
And you can see that from the shop fronts of these big tech companies, um, social media companies, the way they've done it this year, it was all about, there was a lot more human touch, a lot more open. Mm. One, of, one of the big um, social media companies had love written um, on their <laughs> shop front. Um, and, and that's just a reaction to um, you know, the voice of populism. Mm. So a lot more humility. Um, very little talk about cryptocurrencies and Bitcoin this year, possibly because and what a difference a year makes. Last year, Bitcoin was valued at $10,000, whereas this year it's $3,500. So maybe that market is driving sort of some change in the cryptocurrency world, which um, maybe that was why it was absent from the debate this year. Um, Connie, going to Asia, and what I find remarkable about when I'm in China is the use of WeChat. It actually I think that China is way ahead of even the even even the U.S. in terms of in terms of technology. It's it's gone from catching up to actually now leading the world um, in technology. What is um, what are the ambitions in China and of Chinese companies in terms of developing some of these products? Well, I think there's a lot of potential for um, you know you mentioned WeChat. Um, the platform allows you to do everything from send a message to your friends, put some photos on the platform, paying for things, um, ordering a car, um, to sending you know, a red packet um, in Asian culture to your friends. Um, and I think it's a remarkable platform. But what's more interesting is we have a generation of um, highly valuable sort of young people who are actually very attuned. All they've known is a platform of digital banking digital transfers, um, digital messaging. Um, and, and this generation, this, this workforce will be quicker embracing change and more adapt to the, the changes, technological changes to come. Mm. And what's happening in the Hong Kong capital markets in terms of raising capital for Chinese tech companies? Well, I think um, cap the capital markets business is very market dependent. Um, and that depends on how this Cold War uh, or trade war pans out. Um, and hopefully uh, a deal will be done, some deal. The Chinese culture very much, very much believes in coexistence and um, co-prosperity. Mm -hmm. And that means hopefully that a deal that's beneficial to both sides can get struck. So we need collaboration. And you're in, no, none of the top 30 tech companies in the world are in Europe. They're all emanating out of the US and out of China. Where does Europe stand on tech and maybe a few words on GDPR and regulation around tech in Europe? I think Europe, you're right. I mean, the big tech companies are, are in you know, the US, Silicon Valley or, or in, in, in China and Asia. Also in China, just purely also the size of the population uh, plays a big role. Um, I think Europe has to be careful not to fall behind uh, in that. Um, I would say there is also a lot of positives going on, particularly around the area of fintech. I mean, we're sitting here in London at the moment. London is a big center for fintech. If you see the investment in fintech uh, in London, it is, it is uh, very, very significant. Um, I am from Amsterdam in the Netherlands, you know, smaller market, uh, but, but, but very, uh, very active in that area as well. Um, and I'm sure there's lots of other examples. So I am, uh, the glass is half full, uh, but, but obviously, um, you know, with the powerhouses on the tech side, uh, Europe will have to really make an effort. And Europe still, you know, is a collection of uh, um, uh, 20, 28 and shortly, uh, regrettably, 27 countries. 
um, and uh, with different regulations uh, still, and, and, and that doesn't necessarily help. GDPR, I think, is a, um, is a regulation which is having a large global impact. It is also getting some backlash because it makes doing business a lot more complex and a lot more expensive. But going back to the trust in business and the way data is used, um, it is, I think, overall uh, a, a good thing, but it is uh, not easy for business to deal with. And let's just finish on the skills um, that one needs in this new fourth in, age of the fourth industrial revolution. And what were the discussions in Davos and what were the lessons that we were able to learn in Davos around you know, educating our people, um, educating our children, educating the future workforce? What, what were the discussions around and are there any sort of key answers that we can take away from the Davos discussions? Um, I went to a, a breakfast session uh, organised by the OECD around education of, 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 of the youth. And they had an interesting chart. If you look at the sort of 10-year-old or 12-year-olds, um, what kind of jobs they want to do. They want to do lots of jobs which are not necessarily match fit, which is not really what we, uh, what we need in today's changing, changing world. And um, um, you know, there was a big push, and this was a particular organization out of the UK, a big push to help you know, younger children, mid-level children, really understand where the needs are and, 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 and uh, getting them to have more interaction with people from different areas of the workforce. I thought that was a very positive, uh, a positive thing I saw. Um, but you know, with the fast-changing world, the fast-changing technology, um, you know, learning is not just the school age and the education age. It is continuous learning and continuous reskilling. And I think you know, for us also as an organisation, that is something we have to be aware of and embracing every day. Uh, and, and that I think is the big, uh, the big challenge to take up. Yeah. Well, I certainly am continuing to learn every single day. Connie? I think that's a real question around um, the tertiary education around mm -hmm. the world, whether our universities are still current and are they teaching our younger generation the right skills? Um, you know, discussions around critical thinking, innovation, creativity, communication skills. Mm. Um, these are all essential skills um, for our young people, more, more, more so now than ever before. And our, our institutions, imparting these skills fast enough in the right way? I think that's a real question. Yeah, so education should no longer be a memory test, it should be about critical thinking. Good. Well, that's a positive note on, on which to end. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to say thank you to your own and Connie for joining me today, and to you for listening to this Clifford Chance podcast. To hear more, please visit cliffordchance.com, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher or Acast, and follow us on LinkedIn.